Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Gray, and today we're going to have an incredible episode, just like always, and it's going to be informative and intriguing as well. The big topic we're going to first start off with is the general topic, it should be in the title, is conservatism in a post-white America, or right-leaning politics in a post-white America. I touched on this in a column last week on Andrew Tate and what that may look like. And then Vivek, actually, Ramaswamy, actually something to say about Vivek's name is it's unclear how the proper pronunci- pronunciation. I've been hearing Vivek. Um, it's, there's a popular, I mean, v- Vivek is a popular Indian name. And the American pronunciation is given as Vivek. But uh, I've also been saying Vivek. But I think Vivek, we're going to call him Vivek. I don't think he really corrects people who call him, don't call him Vivek or Vivek. But we're going to call him Vivek uh, instead. And it's close enough to what Trump called him. as like young Vivek. Uh, so we'll call him that, uh, Vivek. We'll make a compromise and call him Vivek. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had a tweet storm or he actually was doing a twitter space with elon and then he had a twitter storm after or tweet storm afterwards where he talked about his support for more immigration and this highlights an issue that may happen with conservatism in a post-white america what it may look like and so we're going to investigate that and talk about that today so vivek came out in support of more immigration in a twitter space with elon musk elon musk has said this before, but Elon said that he's in favor of more immigration. And then Vivek agreed, and I'll read Vivek's statements. Vivek said, I agree with that. I actually fully agree with that. And that's one of the things where I think the Republican Party needs to define where we actually stand. There is an anti-legal immigration current among voters. I am going to be on the debate stage in a month, and if anybody has qualms with this, I think I'm going to have a real problem with that because merit-based immigration is one of the fixes to economic growth in this country. And Musk continued on supporting about how this should be. Compared it to a sports team, he said, I want to say, this is Musk, not Vivek, I want to say in a way that everyone can understand, which imagine if America was a sports, was a pro sports team we want to win the championship and we want to keep winning the championship and there are some ace players on another team and they really want to join our team and now we can make them fight us or we can have them join our team and just crush the opposition and i think if ace players want to join our team please do that is the way to continue success we should welcome them not have all these ridiculous immigration obstacles And Ramaswamy, of course, agreed, and he replied with, I think part of the reason you have that reaction, and this is about immigration opposition, you have that reaction is, what we have is somebody who doesn't even sign up for the team, just gets to show up on the field. And that's what we have now, which creates a backlash from the existing team members to say, we don't want any more, when in fact, what we should be saying is, we want the best ones who come and follow the process for actually training and joining the team. And that's what I think merit-based legal immigration ought to be about. And so that's a that's kind of a interesting way of putting it, of putting it uh, with 
immigration is that it's a sports team. We have people who are slacking off and not showing their doing their time on the team, not proving that they should be on the team, and they're holding it back, and it's time to recruit guys from another team. Uh, I don't know if this is the best analogy or best metaphor, but they're going to go with it no matter what. There are interesting things from the conversation. One is very few people are upset at Elon Musk for being pro-immigration, which are increasing legal immigration, which should come into play because Elon Musk is arguably one of the most influential figures on the right now. I mean, people worship him and idolize him in a way that can only be compared to Trump, but the difference is is fewer people are willing to criticize Elon. Uh, Just look at how he changed the website from Twitter to X. Actually, it's supposed to be an X space, not a Twitter space. And there are a lot of conservatives like, this is awesome. And it's like, you don't have to brown nose this much. You don't have to suck up to Elon Musk, but some people criticize it one of the few times, but most conservatives are are like running over each other and clamoring over each other to see who can suck up to Elon Musk the most. And him coming out for more immigration is uh, is a big deal. And it does show that this is like the most influential figure on the right. Second, probably only to Trump. I would say he's more influential than Tucker at the moment because Tucker no longer has his cable news show. And he's more influential than DeSantis. And here we have him saying an opinion that would otherwise alienate the conservative base. And people just kind of shrug their shoulders and don't care about it. Elon Musk is not getting as much hate. I mean, he's said these positions before. This is not coming out of left field. But the fact that nobody wants to call him out on this or they just want to focus on Vivek is something interesting. And with Vivek, he has come out with this stuff but has not ever fully stated, I support more legal immigration. He's strongly implied it. He's saying, we need to have more people like my parents here. We need to have the merit-based immigration so we get the best people. But he's never said we need to increase or more. He's danced around that to where he doesn't want to make a stance. And they've even asked about restricting illegal immigration. He's like, oh, we need to change the plan or change the system to ensure we get the best immigrants. And it's been a strong implication that he's wanted to increase immigration. Here, he finally explicitly spelled it out. You know, no implication. Here, this is fully explicitly stated he wants more immigration. And that's a, you know, that's a, you know, a lot of the people who are liking Vivek because they're liking a lot of stuff he's saying about civil rights law, liking a lot of stuff he's saying about free speech and attacking Florida's hate speech laws and supporting Trump and and showing, you know, attacking the deep state. You know, he's won a lot of fans on the right due to his positions, you know, and I've been praising some of what he's saying, but ultimately on the core issue or whatever the defining issue, the issue you want to say is the defining issue on the right, he fails and says, we want more immigration. But it's not a surprise because Vivek himself is a child of immigrants. He is a product of American immigration policy from the 65 onward. And it's not it's not shocking to believe that he would want more immigration. Same with Elon Musk. I mean, this is all just for Musk, also an immigrant, (laughs) Um, uh, directly an immigrant because he's born in South Africa. I mean, a different kind of immigrant, I would say, than Vivek. But he is an immigrant himself. That's why he can't run for president. I think if we didn't have laws uh, stipulating he had to be a natural born citizen of America, you know, we would uh, Eli would probably be running for president. And that would be an interesting battle between him and Trump. Uh, He'd probably be one of the few that could actually take on Trump.
among the Republicans. I still think Trump would uh, would trump him, but he is actually if you're looking for a succeeding figure to Trump on the right as like the leader or the dominant force, it really is Elon Musk. Now, especially with Tucker, as I've already stated earlier, is out, out of his cable news show, isn't as influential as he once was. Now it seems like Elon would be the most influential force on the right, second only to Trump. And may and if Trump, for some reason, left the political scene, uh, maybe he's in a jail cell of some sort after 2024. You know, then that number one figure would, funnily enough, be Elon Musk. And the only thing that keeping him back is that he wasn't born in America. And I think, um, uh, barring some, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen to somebody, but he's definitely building up his reputation. And say, you know, the laws are changing and he was allowed to run for president and Trump was not running again, or he still maintained his level of popularity, he would definitely be the front runner in 2028 among Republicans and conservatives. And conservative media is like far more enthralled to Elon than they are to Trump at this moment. And that explains why Vivek said his thing being pro-mass immigration and wanting more immigration. Even though he's implied this stuff, he knows that he's trying to win over this right-wing space. And he knows that if he came out in favor of just saying, I want more immigration, I want more immigration, that that would alienate them and would hurt his appeal. But he did this because he wanted to appeal to somebody even more important, and that is Elon Musk. And due to Elon Musk saying, I want more immigration, he's not going to say, oh, I disagree, because then that would piss off Elon. He's trying to win Elon over to his side, away from DeSantis, so he'll boost him and help him out in a way that uh, Elon Musk has been helping out DeSantis and his influencers. Now he can wants to be elevated in that way by Elon. And the thing to know about Vivek and pretty much all Indians is that they are strivers, that they are brown nosers, and that they want to say whatever will appeal or appease to the certain person that they're talking to. So if Vivek is being interviewed by a host, say Tucker Carlson, let's say he's interviewed by Tucker Carlson, and then he goes, asks about immigration, he then talks about the dangers of immigration and illegal immigration and how we need to end illegal immigration. And then he'll even talk about how chain migration is a problem because it brings immigrants we don't want here. And then he will imply that merit-based immigration means less immigration. If he's talking to Tucker. But if he's talking to Elon, who wants more immigration, he will say, oh, sure, let's get more immigration. And it's about appealing to the target audience that he's, that he's currently with. And that target audience is Elon. And that alienated people on internet right, but then he tried to do damage control because of that. And then he was trying, he was interacting with big anon accounts about like what his meaning of being an American nationalist is. You know, he quote tweeted Fisher King about this subject, which I'll read what he was saying uh, to Fisher King and his stance on this, clarifying this. Well, first, let me say what uh, Fisher King said. Fisher King. Quote tweeted Lafayette Lee. This is a lot of a non-action here. Uh, Lafayette Lee pulled out a Vivek quote tweet. I think this was highlighted. This is from like 2022. This is uh, not a new one. And I think Vivek deleted this. And Vivek said in this um, screenshot, he said, Being an American isn't about whether, whether you can trace your ancestry on this land. It's about whether you're committed to our nation and its core ideals. The problem I see is too many people who can trace their ancestry don't actually give a damn about this country. 
this guy is wrong. I don't know who he's saying this guy is wrong to, but that is. And then um, Lafayette Lee said, Republican for no one is legal, illegal. Then Fisher King said, below you see the limit of high IQ candidates who don't actually feel rooted in this place. No matter how many smart things a guy says, when he basically views this land as an economic playground, that's disqualifying. So uh, Fisher King deleted his tweet, but Vivek responded to it anyway, saying, I'm an American nationalist. This country isn't just an economic zone, but it's de not defined by ethnicity either. We're not bound by blood in our veins. We're bound by the ideals that our founders spilled blood to pres preserve. They wrote them out and we fought a revolution, a civil war, and two world wars to save them. I refuse to let the woke left or their intellectual cousins on the right browbeat us into thinking otherwise. I'm rooted deep in this country and I'll stand my ground to the end if I have to. This is a good debate to have in the GOP. Let's smoke it out. And then he wants to have like a further debate with Fisher King, which is just, uh, I'm open to a chat sometime. Visit us on the campaign trail, which is just funny, which he's once again trying to appeal to his audience and being like, hey, you know, you make some interesting points, but I want to stand my ground and say this. And now he's trying to win over these types to him. So he is just saying whatever they want to hear. And Vivek has kind of done this. It's like, it, it's really funny. I don't know if admirable is the quite the term, but it is really funny how he just says what like the boomer cons want to hear. And even that tweet, you know, right wing Twitter really didn't like that tweet and what he was saying and everyone's quote tweeting it, including me. I mean, I think it's a stupid point because once again, like America was made by specific people, you know, the Anglo Protestants. If we were founded by another people, we would not be the same country. It was specifically the same people and those people enculturating uh, the country and enculturating newcomers that they joined along with the Anglo-Protestants that they made this country there. And none of the founding fathers ever had the idea that we would be a multiracial, multicultural nation. They thought, you know, we're going to have immigrants come here, but they're going to be European. They're going to assimilate to Anglo-Protestantism and effectively drop their European ancestry and it'd be people mostly that are similar to the Anglo-Protestants who would come here and join in. They did not imagine the whole world coming here. They did not think that like Indians would be running for president and possibly being president. You know, their idea was not Kamala Harris for what they want as a future uh, as a future nation. And there is this point about America as an idea versus not an idea that we'll go into in a moment. But that tweet that he sent, you know, outside of right-wing Twitter, most boomers and the ordinary Fox News viewers would say, hell yeah, I agree with that. They would nod their head because he knows really what the boomer cons want to hear. I think the best example of this is when, I, I think I've talked about this before, but he was at the NRA convention and he's talking about how the solution for Taiwan is to get them armed up and to defend their freedom. And this is how we defend our freedom in America is through AR-15s and stuff. And he's like, we need every citizen in Taiwan to be armed up to show what freedom and liberty means. And these people are on their feet clapping along. And he just really gives the red meat to the audience in a way in a, in a way that's shameless because other people will be like, that's too far, that's too corny. But Vivek is like, no, I'm going full into this. I'm going to believe it. And he's so self-confident in the bullshit he's saying that you have to like, you know, respect that. I think uh, he did a Charlemagne the God interview 
And Charlemagne is clearly not as intelligent as as Vivek. And Charlemagne's like, yo, you don't think uh, this country been white supremacist and it's fallen? Uh, you know, it's not as good as we think it is. He's like, hold on, Charlemagne. This country has is the most perfect nation ever to create it. Yes, we've had our fallings. Yes, we haven't gone as far enough as we should. But we're on the path of perfection. And if you compare us to 1870, we look a lot better. And he just like overwhelms like Charlemagne with like his um, uh, his commitment to these boomerisms. And Charlemagne's like, oh, you know, he just can't respond to it. And all the boomer cons are loving this. He really gives them in a way because maybe he doesn't, he really doesn't genuinely believe this stuff. One thing to realize is that a lot of Indians in American politics don't genuinely believe anything that they're saying. This is just a game to gain status and power and sometimes gain wealth in politics. And so these types will just like change their politics to suit the moment or whatever they suit the winds. I mean, if you look at Sagar and Jetty, like this guy has had like a, you know, six different political revol or changes just in like five years. Like I, when I was working with him at the caller, he was a neocon. Then he became uh, a right wing populist. Then he became like a left wing populist. Then he became, now he's like a centrist liberal or, you know, above it all for him and he's anti-populist. So he's like been all over the place. And, it, you know, uh, Saurabh Sharma is another one. He when you know, he started out as a neocon. Now he's a right wing populist. They just change their politics to suit the moment and whatever will gain them more status and power. And it's probably the same with Vivek, which I kind of like. But Vivek is like a more important because he's actually running on this campaign uh, maybe he has a potential to be a president and I feel that he's he is taking up subjects that are more controversial than others and it's not just normal boomer con stuff like him taking on civil rights law him taking on you know anti-white racism in a way that it's other candidates shy away from that stuff but he's willing to go after it so that does differentiate himself and make him a little bit better than others but at the end of the day, I don't really think he genuinely believes this stuff. He may believe the affirmative action stuff and all that because he knows that it hurts people like himself. You know, it hurts Indians, it hurts Asians. And he does have this high IQ immigrant conservatism that they want where it's going to. And I've talked and I've, I keep saying I've talked about this before, but I've talked about this in the past is that there is this type of high IQ um I don't know. It's like pro-immigration, but anti, I don't want to say anti-black, but anti-black interests or uh, opposing black interests is that you're, you know, you're tough on crime, pro-law and order. You are really anti-affirmative action. You're anti-Black Lives Matter. And you're willing to say things that, you know, the uh, BLM crowd is not going to like and that a lot of the media is not going to like due to their Afrolatry and other things and you know Vivek uh, goes with that it's like he's very strong on the uh, pu pushing back against Afrolatry but at the same time he is uh, very pro-immigration obviously because he is an immigrant and the same could be said for Elon even though he's not Indian you know Elon has been sharing color of crime stuff and data and talking about like wow this is and highlighting anti-white racism particularly coming from blacks but 
He wants more immigration. And so there is, uh, and there's other people who are getting into this, like Richard Hanania and a couple of other figures like that, where it's like a very high IQ, uh, pro-immigration, pro, but anti-black um, interests are, are hostile to uh, the black agenda. And that there there is some potential for that there is some potential for that and you have to and i think i've been asked before in kind of lead questions is like what 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 do i thought think about that would i actually prefer that overall alternative and i'd have to say it's better than the typical conservatism of say 2012 where it was pro-immigrant and really pro-black you know i was like saying we need school choice we need to do all these things. We need more uh, economic freedom zones or uh, economic or enterprise zones, enterprise zones, enterprise zones for the inner city. You know, Paul Ryanism was extremely pro-black and pro in indulging in Afrolatry. You know, he even got into criminal justice reform and other stupid things. They would still be opposed to affirmative action, but they would be queasy about it due to how the impact it would have on blacks. This is like way better because it's simply saying like, no, we're not going to do this. This is bad. We're not going to have affirmative action. We're not going to do these enterprise zones. We're going to admit like what's happening with crime. We're going to meet the truth about crime. We're going to meet the truth about uh, IQ differences and other things. But we are still going to be pro-immigration. So the classic conservatism is pro-immigration and <laughs> also indulging in a lot of this black worship. But the new... Uh, the Vivek stuff is something different. And on that one aspect, I think he's genuine about he uh, because it is like a very controversial move. You know, it is a risky move. And it's one of the few risky things that he may, you know, the base may not go along with him or it's something new to them that they, you know, it's uncharted territory, but he's going along with it. And I think he is going with it because, you know, immigrants a lot of his immigrant community has to live by them. You know, they experience this. You know, some of the more recent immigrants have to live uh, next to Magic. And he also knows that, you know, when it's competing for schools, that South Asians are going, sometimes going to have their spots taken by uh, magical individuals due to satisfy racial quotas. And, and so they want to get rid of that stuff. And so it's about it. it they do see it as something that's building up their own power and, and securing their own interests. But at the same time, it's still um, a rather key position, even though there is a self-interested motive behind it that maybe the right um, wouldn't be so thrilled with it for the reason why they're supporting this agenda. So this is one popular or one possible alternative or thing or thing that could result in a post-white American conservatism is that it becomes these immigrants who clearly recognize that the magical element in America hinders some of its progress, hinders a lot of its safety, and it's something that they have to navigate around. And they're willing to, unlike some of their cousins who turn to the left, who want to exploit that situation for their own gain, they instead want and you know join the coalition of angry POC. They instead want to contain that situation and sometimes and you know not allow it to get out of control like what the left does and but at the same time they want to increase immigration because they feel that this is the driver of economic progress this is they want more people like themselves in this country they don't they still have some resentment 
toward the native element. There were some Indians who were replying to Vivex, Vivex a tweet saying like these nativists are so lazy. They've just come here and they expect to 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 pedestal themselves and say they're the real Americans because they're ancestors. They need to get a life and get out of here. And and some of these Indians were saying that. And there's still this resentment for the native whites here, which that could they they also uh, Vivek allowed some of that to come into play when he was talking about like the sports team analogy and saying that there's all these people on the team who are not supposed to not be on the team and they're not good enough and we should replace them with immigrants, which uh, um, <laughs> it's uh, not a very good uh, analogy to make, but they can't be as open as some of the people replying to Vivek were, uh, but that would still be an implication is that we're, well, we're replacing the whites with these Asians and high IQ immigrants at the same time, we're also hoping to replace the blacks as well. So we're replacing whites and blacks and creating a truly immigrant nation where those are no longer the defining people of America, either black or white, which, you know, the left wants to say blacks are the defining people of America. And I guess the Internet right right wants to say the whites, but with the immigrant high IQ immigrant coalition, they want to say neither. It's actually the new immigrants who are coming, and those are who set and make America. Before going into other aspects of post-white American conservatism, I have to go into this idea about whether America is an idea or not, which uh, Vivek and others you know, are arguing about this. I do find his thing funny because this is really what it boils down to when a, a mainstream people talk about how America is not an idea. They're like, well, it's not an idea. It's not an economic zone. It's something else. It's uh, defined by the founders ideals. They'll sometimes say that or they'll say it's like everyone who lives here. And it's like everyone's uh, everyone who lives here is an legacy American. And they're like, what? I don't think that makes a lot of sense. And it's usually this funny dancing around point is that it's now a popular rhetorical saying to say America is not an idea, it's a nation or, or, or it's a people. But then they're asked to, well, what do you mean by that? What do you specify? It either goes into another way of saying America is an idea, like what Vivek is saying, or it goes into this, uh, just anyone who lives here, it's the people. That means that includes black, white, Asian, um, India and everyone is a part of that. And so those become, become kind of the responses. Now, in some ways, anytime that criticizing America is an idea, the people who do that are usually saying that in order to support, you know, limited immigration. They're generally, even if they're using kind of a cucky or illogical response, it's generally in the use of wanting less immigration and denouncing mass immigration and saying that America is not a nation of immigrants. It's not just an ideological construct. There's something more to that. And then when they're asked to define that, well, they, they don't go as far as they should. Now on the idea of whether America is an idea or not, or a people, you know, everyone, as I've always talked about from the founding onwards, there's always been these two different conceptions of America. Sometimes they've aligned with one another. So a lot of times they've been in conflict with one another. And this was found straight at the founding. Is that America, the founders had an idea that it was not just an idea open to everyone. Because they would have been horrified if they looked at our current demographics. And they would have said, this is not the America we imagine. They 
imagine that America would be have a core Anglo-Protestant population with some other immigrants groups coming in that are similar and complementing that and eventually joining that core group. Uh, they did not imagine that the entire world would empty out into here and that we'd have, uh, you know, all these type of forces we see in the cities. Uh, that was not their idea of America. But at the same time, so they did think of America as a people and the people who were making it, they wanted to preserve and ensure that they stayed um, at, at, at least as the core population. But at the same time, and there was this conception that not everyone could be American by, you know, our first Naturalization Act from 1790, which was not overturned up until the 1950s, which said that, you know, only free white men of good character could be made citizens. It changed in Reconstruction, where then they opened that up to to uh, freed slaves, is that they would also be naturalized. But it was also never, you know, Asians could never get that benefit is that we had several court cases where Asians who had come to this country and wanted to be, you know, their kids, if they were born here, they would obviously be naturalized under birthright citizenship, but they themselves couldn't become citizens. And there were several legal lawsuits or lawsuits over this matter. And any, every time prior to the 1950s, they were overturned or they were ensured that they could not become citizens. But it wasn't until the 1950s where that was fully changed and that these Asian immigrants who had lived here could become citizens. And so that was the conception is that saying free white men of good character would be who are Americans and are the only people who could be Americans for much of our history. So if the founders intended for everyone to be an American, they wouldn't have put that in the, their first nationalization. act. And you could even just say the competition with other groups is that. You, the Indians, you know, there was all these, some people were like saying, well, we should include them, we should assimilate them, but they were clearly not fitting in American society, and that's why Indian removal was pushed. And I, I was seeing Hanani cite like Thomas Jefferson was saying that, but Thomas Jefferson, as president, and later on, they knew that Indian assimilation wouldn't work because there was Jefferson had made notes to saying like, well, maybe they'll assimilate and become just like us, but then that you know clearly didn't work out, and they pushed him out to the settlements or to the reservations. It was also the same with it in the conflict over the Mexican-American War is that there was a large opposition to taking more of Mexico because they were worried about them taking an alien, alien element that was completely different from Anglo-Protestants and several Americans were opposed to this idea. The 1924 Immigration Act was about ensuring that the Anglo-Protestant court remained intact and remained dominant and that there weren't alien elements coming in and, and and demographically replacing it. You know, that was a core part of it. And so there was this idea of what Americans are. It wasn't just simply an idea. There was an ethnic conception of America. up And, and it was still had a lot of influence up until the mid-1960s when the ideological conception of America triumphed. And so when people just say America is an idea, there is like truth to that in that the founders did write a lot of this stuff and they did really believe that, you know, that there's this great land of liberty and that there's this commitment to republicanism and all these type of traits. But at the same time, they felt they didn't quite as explicitly state this, but it was implicitly and in their actions, it was stated that this was not open to all, that there's a specific people behind this. And if you lose that specific people or they lose their grip on this country, it's no longer America. 
And that's always in that ideological and ethnic conception of America have had that complicated relationship since the founding. The unfortunate part is that a lot of people, including a lot of our base, believe America is an idea, but they are starting to learn that, oh, well, maybe that's a liberal idea, which is like a positive development for them. But even their like way of framing it, they'll still think America's an idea and that anyone could become an American is like, oh, I've got a great uh, Pakistani dentist or some sort. They'll like brag about that. And they still have trouble having a type of ethnic consciousness within them is that a lot of the, the funny thing about it, all this arguments is that the people most likely to believe America is an idea and it's open to all are the core Anglo-Protestant people of America. Those are, and I, I don't want to say the pro, uh, the Ang, the Protestant element, because now a lot of Catholics are, would be a part of that in other groups, but the core Anglo element of this country, the old stock, the people with the founding stock, the, the true legacy Americans are probably the most willing to believe that America is an idea and it's open to all, and they're very optimistic about it. A lot of the new immigrants recognize the truth more so than the core population because they see it as like, well, there's all these figures. Whenever I see a statue, I see some Nordic white guy. I see all the founding fathers. They're all dead white men. I see, you know, who are the most prized people in terms of beauty and attraction, and it's all white people. And they recognize that this, you know, is a country suffused with a unstated white bias, so to speak. You could say maybe it's a white privilege, but white bias. Uh, even though whites would be the first to deny it and then emphatically say that there isn't and then talk about like all their various minority friends to immigrants, they recognize this and that creates a lot of resentment among them. And that's why they become so anti-white is because they're tired of these people running the show and them being considered be more beautiful than anyone else. And their and their figures are who we celebrate and and build statues over. They want to tear those down and replace them with people who look like themselves so they no longer have to look up to the whites and see them as the ones who have the most claim on this country. At the same time, there are immigrants who also recognize that, but instead of have resentment, they want to assimilate to whiteness, so they want to keep the whiteness whites in, um, uh, in the dominant position in American society. And that's like a lot of the online right, because one of the funniest things about this argument is that a lot of the people who are arguing with Vivek are also not legacy Americans themselves. A lot of the online right uh, is not from the core American population. A lot of it is from these people at the fringes of whiteness or from recent immigrant backgrounds. And they're, they're, so it's like very funny. It's like the people who are arguing for the heritage Americans and the ethnic conception of America are likely not from the founding stock. And the people they're arguing with are also likely not from the founding stock. And so it's like immigrants arguing over what's supposed to be the proper conception of America. But I think those people also recognize it in the same way that the leftists do, is that most of the immigrants turn to the left when they see the type of whiteness of American society and how whiteness is, even though it's demonized rhetorically in the media, there's still this white bias in terms of preferences are what the majority of people you're going to see and the majority of statues you're going to see and the people who are, you know, the heroes and figures who made this country, you know, the majority, the vast majority of them are going to be white and that creates resentment. But at the same time, there are immigrants who see that and recognize that. And they also see the failures and the problems going on with other uh, non-white communities 
in a way that a lot of the core white population won't understand because they've been brainwashed with the media all their lives. Well, like the immigrants who maybe come from a different background or in their parents, you know, were certainly not raised with all that media brainwashing. They're more able to point out some of these uh, racial taboos and recognize them more so than the core population, which is you know, been raised on American television all their lives and is, and is told never to recognize these things. So it's like an interesting factor we have, which that's another element that could happen with post-white uh, American conservatism is that it becomes all these immigrants who are wanting to preserve white identity in America, but there isn't as many whites around as they want. It's like the future of the white nationalist movement is uh, not very white. <laughs> like post-white nationalism is something, uh, something you see. But that's even with like, um, not like saying that anything we are doing as white nationalists but even if you look at these explicitly white nationalist groups a lot of them have like are half hispanic or even majority hispanic you're like what <laughs> where, where are the whites in the white nationalist movement that's like when you really know is that they're having to import um is that america has to import its racist <laughs> and um that's something funny that's happening but that's one of the interest that's one of the kind of the things we're seeing changing as america hits a post white future so that's one element uh, and i don't want to like specifically say that there's like things in opposition there's just elements that could be there and it's all going to be kind of a big tent coalition unless demographic trends reversed or you know the social outlook and cultural mindset of the core population radically changed in a few years this is what we could be facing Another element, as I outlined in my article last week on Andrew Tate, is Andrew Tate, or hustlerism, as I want to say, is that a lot of, and I, you know, just to explain this article and to add some further thoughts to it, is that a lot of conservatives hate Andrew Tate and what he represents because a lot of conservatives wish that the newer right is far more socially conservative, much more explicitly Christian, is not engaged in pimping out women for obvious reasons and they really just don't like andrew tate and it's from all sides you know a lot of the big obviously conservative movement's not going to like him because they are such simps for women that they don't like any type of figure that is seen as misogynist and is you know putting down women they want to imagine that all these women are good little angels and that it's a good men scarcity that makes them do anything bad. And Andrew Tate is like number one enemy of that regard. There's also people on the online right who don't like him either because they see him as a degenerate or because they see him as a non-white degenerate. And so there's a lot of reasons to hate on Andrew Tate for uh, a variety of reasons. And I've written defenses of Andrew Tate, mainly because when the left was trying to cancel him, it was not for any of the conservative reasons. It's not because he's a degenerate. It's not because he's mixed race. It's not because he is, uh, you know, not Christian. It's because he converted to Islam. It's because he gives a message that the liberals don't want to hear. They don't want to have... He does present a kind of sexual realism, you know, and similar to race realism. Uh, you can argue whether he goes too far or not, but they really don't want sex realism to become popular. They really don't like that attitude. And he's also indulged in some of the race realism and said some truths about immigration and race and 
you know, the nature of America, the nature of Western civilization, which also doesn't want to hear. But that's not the primary. The sex realism is more of the primary appeal to Tate as long as along with his uh, new type of entrepreneurship that he pushes out to his followers. Now, so when you're looking at Tate, as I said, for it's more of a I said it's a post white American conservatism, but it's beyond that. It's not explicitly political. It's like a cultural style that would be affiliated with the right if America became a majority minority nation. The Republican voter of the past, so their culture that they had was very waspy, you know, country clubs, wearing polos, wearing khakis and loafers. You know, this is like the typical Republican look of the past. And this is the type of culture they aspire to. There's still some working class elements, but the middle white middle class was the backbone of Republicanism. Republicans and conservatives and still is even though everyone wants to hate on the white middle class it still is but Tate presents something different you know he is never he is not wearing polos he's not wearing khakis he's not wearing loafers he very much scoffs at the old wasp ideal and that white middle class ideal and the white middle class standards and it's something elevated instead there's these flaunting extravagant displays of wealth you know, this over-the-top machismo that trying to, you know, imitate gangsters and the type even the language used among friends is more like gangsters than, uh, you know, golf buddies. <laughs> and this type, and it's very much rooted in rap ethos of fuck bitches get money, which in the past, you know, the entrepreneur spirit of America, you know, prioritized hard work and achieving a good income so he could buy a house and raise a family here tate sort of encourages that but instead it's just simply making money by any means necessary you know scams are good which in the past the waspy ideal is you're not you're making money through respectable and reputable means not through um scams and only fans and only fans and uh pimping and other things that Andrew Tate has been accused of, it's that you are doing it through repeatable means, whether becoming a lawyer, doctor, or starting your own business. Here, it's just like how, how we can get money fast. And a lot of minorities are into this stuff. And it's a part of that is like, I made this point is that saying a lot of minorities are not anti-capitalists. They really like the idea of American wealth and this idea of American dream where they can, you know, have a lot of nice stuff, can buy a nice car, and, you know, can have wealth. They like wealth. They want to achieve that wealth, and they think they can do that in America more so than anywhere else. But they don't want to, they really also resent WASP culture and WASP standards, and they want new culture, new standards, and Tate provides that. And at the same time, there's an anti-woke element, but there's not a social conservative element to it. You know, there's <laughs> there, you know, Tate is not a social conservative by any uh, any metric. But this is also very appealing to, you know, blacks, Hispanics, immigrants, drivers and a lot of younger white suburbanites who also don't really like the waspy ideal anymore. They've been listening to rap all their lives. They like the type of drip that is displayed by celebrities now and even you know i would say like an example of this type of person would be joe burrow joe burrow is because also a thing about tate is it's not quite wigger it's not it's not ghetto but it's 
influenced by rap culture and it's elevating it to a more upscale level. And I would say, even though I don't think Joe Burrow is into Tatism and he's actually like, you know, uh, I think either due to his girlfriend or something, he's been like talking about how he's pro-abortion and giving woke liberal messages. But his style and the way he presents himself is very much a post-white America because he wears bling. He wears outfits that it'd be more, it was less common for white athletes to wear that type of stuff and more common for black athletes who wanted to look nice, but not waspy, but not ghetto. And they would wear this type of stuff. And that's the type of outfit and style that Joe Burrow, who, for those who don't know, is the Cincinnati Bengals quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks in the, in the NFL right now. And he's kind of a post-white American white guy that you would say, and it's like something that you would see as a part of Tateism, even though I don't think he's into Andrew Tate at all. But a lot of young whites would rather be more like Joe Burrow and Andrew Tate and their style and how they conduct themselves, listening to rap music and having that type of appeal rather than, you know, the old guys in, in khakis going to golf together and polos and stuff. They might like golf, but they'll like now have bling along with them if they're going to golf and wear things that... You know, the wasp, old wasp would say is that's kind of gaudy and, and, you know, not fit for their standards, but they're imposing new standards. So country club conservatism, which has had a lot of problems in the past. You know, I think a lot of these guys have supported mass immigration more than they should have. But I don't I think the new elements going to support mass immigration because more of these types are going to be the mass <laughs> are going to be the immigrants rather than it's white guys just looking for cheap labor. And that's now going to, the country club style is going to be replaced by Andrew Tate style. And it's very similar in the, you know, it's very pro-capitalist. It's very much of an American phenomenon with Tate in that he, you know, is offering self-help guide and how you can build success and make money and achieve your own version of the American dream. And I think that's something that is deep, that is very appealing to wide swaths of the population, particularly the young population. And conservatives just don't understand that. And it's closer to what some people who may vote Republican in the future are or voting for Republicans right now. And they're younger and maybe more diverse than whatever conservatism is offering, like integralism or whatever is coming out of Compact magazine has zero appeal to these people. Andrew Tate has a lot of appeal to these people, and he's not explicitly political, but that culture around him and the style and the values that he's ensuring is they're going to say that a lot of these people are going to probably be Republican because they're not going to want to pay taxes and they're not going to like regulations and restrictions and they're not going to like the wokeness pr promoted by Democrats. But at the same time, they're not going to be uh, full on religious traditionalists. And as I said in my article, this isn't really a good thing because this is, you know, if we were a wider America and a, had a white core population that was stronger in its identity, stronger in its values and stronger in itself, you know, Andrew Tateism would not be popular. Hustlerism would not be popular. But due to having a nation where anti-white racism is pre prevalent and the core white population doesn't have a strong sense of identity and doesn't have the sense of confidence in itself anymore, then Tateism is able to overtake itself. I would much rather have waspy ideals encourage the young people. Like we are not wearing bling. We're not having, we're not getting tattoos. We're not smoking weed. Uh, uh, we can go out. I'm not really into golf. I mean, my family's all into golf, but I never really got into it for uh, various reasons. But 
I, you know, I support people going out to golf. Uh, I support all those type of activities, even if it's watching sports and stuff, you know, that's still fine. Uh, There's worse things you can do with your friends, but I'd much rather have the old waspy middle-class ideals pushed with a stronger sense of themselves, a stronger sense of ethnic or our sense of identity within themselves and also the idea that not everything is about economics it's not about just how we can make more money is that it's about preserving themselves is the highest goal and that's why they would be opposed to mass immigration so there's some mentalities that need to be changed but i don't see those mentalities being changed with hustlerism is that they would also promote mass immigration in other ways because it's even more nakedly greedy than the middle class standards of the past and that will make money by any means, whether it's illicit or not, or whether it's uh, tawdry or not, we are going to be engaged in money. And that's what Andrew Tate promotes. So I'm not saying it's like a good thing. I'm just saying it's what's existing and what could look like. Now, I did have a friend who's very pro Andrew Tate, who, uh, you know, he liked the piece, but he disagreed with a lot of with some of it. And he said he really didn't like the idea that I was overstating how Andrew Tate is a part of American conservatism, and he said that he was actually post-American then in his attitudes and stuff, and he pointed to the fact that he doesn't live in America as one of the reasons for that. And he pointed to what post-white American conservatism would be is Forgiato Blow. Forgiato Blow, I've I've talked about a lot, is the uh, face-tattooed white rapper. Yes, believe it or not, he is white. Sometimes you can tell when he takes off his hat and maybe he's just like talking normal, you could actually realize like, oh, it is a white guy. Uh, but he is like transcended whiteness uh, for Giada Blow to be uh, uh, racially unknown. But he's the white, he's the rapper who does all the like fuck Bud Light song and like the uh, pro Trump stuff. He just did one on MTG. Um, this stuff I wouldn't say is high quality. It's very funny content, but it's a uh, very... Uh, gloomy that this is how popular among a lot of our base and he'd say that this is something more like it it's something that's like an embrace of american trash culture and it's icp gop you know insane clown posse gop that's embraced by this and we're having face tattoos and all this stuff but at the same time we're uh you know destroying bud light cans um we're talking about uh, going to see sound of freedom and we're indulged in a lot of this stuff that's really marketed to the lowest common denominator among the conservative base but it's now done through rap music and face tattoos and it's something that also includes people of all races of it's very much the multiracial working class and he would say that that's more of the element is something that's like corny and explicitly political like forgiato blow now there is like some truth to it but you have to realize is that Andrew Tate is far more popular than Forgiato Blow. And I think most people realize that Forgiato Blow is a little bit of a sideshow performer, is that I don't think the majority of people who are part of the multiracial working class, which it transcends class, but it's like this multiracial working and middle class element. How about that? We'll talk about that as the Andrew Tate element is that it's Forgiato Blow does not fully represent them. It represents an aspect of it at its most ridiculous fashion and what they will rep- what they will tolerate and like and some of their cultural tastes. But if you're looking at the bigger picture of like what are young people into who are 
Republican-leaning or conservative-leaning, Andrew Tate is a better representative of that. And he's not post-American. He is not an anti-American. He's a very American figure. Because in Europe, they... You know, Europeans don't have the kind of commercial or entrepreneurial spirit that we have uh, for good and for bad. You know, they really don't, <laughs> you know, they have their fair share of scam artists, but it's not as part of the, as much part of their character and civilization as this is with uh, America. You know, P.T. Barnum is like a rep is a true idol of American civilization, a true representative of it. You know, they don't have their own P.T. Barnum. Uh, in the, quite the way. And they're very much more technocratic and managerial in how they operate within a capitalist system. That's why they don't have as many, you know, businesses start up and as and much innovation as America does. That's like the positive element of the entrepreneurial spirit and the commercialism of America. But the negative aspect is that you have a ton of scam artists and con artists trying to make money by any means necessary. And Europe, Europeans don't seem to like Andrew Tate at all. Like his whole audience is primarily American. The only reason why he lives in Hungary, or not Hungary, R Romania, is because of how cheap it is. And, you know, maybe he felt that he could get around the walls more, which he's learning to uh, his detriment that it's not quite the case. So he's not a... I would not say he's a post-American figure, even though he's living outside of America. He's a very much a, and he himself, you know, he was raised in Britain. You know, I think he's um, half British, half half American. I forget the the whole thing, but he's very much, no matter what his full uh, where he was raised, he's very much an American figure. He's very much a representative of American civilization. It's not he's not a European. <laughs> he's not a representative of European civilization by any standard. Horatio Alger is not a European figure, and Andrew Tate is the 21st century Horatio Alger. You know he Alger. He's he is offering a get rich mindset or philosophy to help his followers out, and that's not really what Europeans are about. It's just uh, just kind of uh, being content with life and moving on, which is, you know, some of the reasons why they've been able to dominate by America because we're much more uh, competitive and entrepreneurial civilization now than Europeans. At the same time, we're not as, uh, we have not created as much great culture as Europeans. So that's one of the differences between us. And so I would say if you're looking at that, no, Andrew Tate is very much, I would say if you're looking at what specifically the type of right-wing populism that has a clownish element to it yes forgiato blow is more representative about it but if you're looking at the culture and the type of people who would be open to voting for republicans or supporting conservative ideas and a bigger picture of that type of culture that would contribute to what would be a republican voting block in the future i think you'd have to see the andrew tate block as a bigger frame of it rather than the you know the core part of it are the narrow online element of it that would be represented by 4G Auto Blow and it also includes like QAnon and a lot of other goofy stuff along with it. So all these things are should be kept in mind. And I see a lot of right-wing populists who want to imagine what their multiracial working class is. And they always imagine it as something along the 1950s working class is like hardworking, uh, devoutly Christian elements and that they're up they're good upstanding people who are rebelling against the degeneracy around them and I've talked about this a lot with the white working classes that a lot of them are as plagued by the degeneracy of America 
as much as any other class, but probably more so than a lot of their, you know, the white middle class and others. I'm not saying the white middle class is perfect, but I'm just saying, you know, if you're looking at the elements of drug addiction and broken families and stuff, that's much more found among the white working class than it is among the white middle class. Not saying that it's not present at all about white middle class, but you see those elements a lot more in the white working class. And a lot of people just want to have this imaginary fantasy of what they're like, and especially with their culture. And this builds off a topic I was having last week about country music, where they imagine that the real authentic uh, country music fans are the ones who are really conservative or are listening to traditional country music, you know, Coulter Wall or Sturgill Simpson and stuff. And then I was pointing out like most of the traditional country music that doesn't incorporate um, a drum machine, rap beats and, uh, you know, rock elements. It, most of those guys are more likely to be libtarded than the pop country stars. And the pop country stars are more willing to endorse Trump and express right wing ideals. And that's a similar with like some of that audience, too, is that in rural America, the like most popular song they love if you over the last few years would have to be fancy like Applebee's, which fancy like Applebee's is content of it aside, you know, it is a terrible song. It's incorporating a lot of rap influence and it's just like horrible, but they love fancy like Applebee's and people have to remember that like a lot of the culture appreciated by um, some of the base or some of the people out there is not quite what they imagine. I think it's just something you have to accept, but you also don't have to celebrate it quite to the amount like I do see some right-wing populists who try to force themselves to like American trash culture I don't think you should you shouldn't you need to have some agreement with it but you shouldn't have actually indulged it and celebrate it is that you should have a better sense of culture that is you know more into opera than <laughs> fancy like a Wagner rather than fancy like Applebee's <laughs> I think there is an ideal that we should stress to people obviously not everyone's going to meet that ideal but there still should be that ideal there. And that's just, that's just an element on right-wing populism because otherwise we're just going to be sitting and listening to Forgiato Blow and all these other terrible MAGA rap, which, uh, you know, it's funny content-wise, but like culturally speaking, a bigger picture is probably not a good thing that this is becoming because it's a part of post-white American conservatism. And I think the general point you want to make is that you don't want to have post-white American conservatism, but the only solution to that is addressing the Great Replacement and reversing it. Because uh, otherwise, no matter what your views on immigration or whatever, or these demographic trends that are happening, the future of American conservatism is going to look more like Vivek, Andrew Tate, and Forgiato Blow than any, than any online meme ideology that you may have. And the only thing that can change that is addressing the core identity issues where those where Vivek is the closest who comes to it. And sometimes Andrew Tate addresses it, but Andrew Tate cares far more about making money and getting bitches than he does in saving white or Western civilization. And Forgiato Blow, I don't even think understands this. But that's why you have to stress the identity issues and that's why that has to come at the forefront because that will ensure that we don't hit the nightmare that is post-white American conservatism. So that's my take on that. That was an hour-long discussion, but we have one uh, topic to go off on before we hit the convalete questions. And uh, Maryland, uh, Baltimore actually, there was an interesting case which 
once again proves the black privilege prevalent in our society now is that a squeegee worker who is I think he was not 16 when this happened. I think he shot and killed this guy last year, so he'd have been like 15. But they don't they don't release his name. But he killed a white man uh, named Tim Reynolds, who got us car to confront these squeegee workers. And the squeegee workers are very they like to harass and intimidate people into paying them. If you don't pay them, they'll start attacking your car and threatening you and stuff. And these guys were likely doing this. And he went out to confront them with a bat. Maybe not the smartest idea. And they, you know, threw something at him and the guy, Tim Reynolds, began retreating. And the accused killer, who's unnamed, likely black, or he's actually 100% black, but they didn't, they didn't address that in the news media, got out a bag and he pulled out a gun out of it and then shot him to death and shot him multiple times. And it clearly indicates that he had intention to murder the guy. You know, he was not in a self-defense situation. You know, Tim Reynolds was retreating back to his car when he and he got uh, he went and retrieved a bag it was not on him and he pulled out a gun and shot him to death and it indicated that there was a likely an intent to murder and that murder charges were appropriate but in his trial the jury acquitted him of murder charges and they did convict him of manslaughter but one juror went up and with tears in her eyes said i'm sorry to the young defendant and even when it happened that she felt bad over manslaughter. And the defense attorneys wanted a complete exoneration because they were arguing self-defense. They were still treating it as a huge victory because they felt that they could appeal it and ensure that this 16-year-old is only sent to juveniles, you know, detention, and that he would be out in a few years. It's not quite raising to the standard of some of these cases we've seen where, you know, there was a case in 2017 where a black guy approached a vehicle, which in the vehicle was a retired fire um, volunteer fire chief. And the guy claimed the white guy startled him and he shot him to death and he was exonerated, found not guilty in 2021. There's this case in San Francisco that I always bring up where these two blacks murdered an elderly white guy on camera and they admitted to it but a jury couldn't reach a conviction because the black defendants claimed they were too low iq and drug addicted to know what they were doing uh there and there's several other cases where um you know there's like straight you know cold-blooded murders seen and they get off another case i think this this is from kansas city where a white off-duty fireman was uh you know took action against a black guy who was threatening a gas station cashier and the guy, you know, fought him and he was getting the better end of it. And this guy had intervened in order to stop this guy from threatening a gas station cashier or gas station clerk. And the guy was wrestling him on the ground and then his girlfriend pulled out a gun and executed the white guy. And she was, it was ruled self-defense. And this was the white guy being a good Samaritan. So there are several cases where the legal system is upholding black privilege. Here, at least they got a conviction on something, but it's likely that this guy is only going to serve a few years for a cold-blooded murder. And the fact that jury felt guilty, and they took a long time to get a guilty verdict. It looked like at one point that they were not going to find him, this kid guilty of any charges. They did find him guilty of some charges, but they felt bad about it, and they had tears in their eyes, and they are saying they're sorry for telling a, a kid who was uh you know murdered somebody of that and it's likely that you know 
And nobody, you know, you got to think it's like there's so much this hatred for right wing views is that Ricky Vaughn, just for memes, I guarantee you the jur- jury felt he was more evil than this kid who just murdered a guy for in cold blood for no reason, just for challenging him. But they are, feel very apologetic for this kid. But they view Ricky Vaughn as the ultimate evil who deserves a long jiz- a jail sentence for his terrible crimes of posting memes. So it's just the nature of, uh, of the way the criminal justice system works. And a lot of it is not just so much elites or judges and stuff. A lot of it is due to the uh, people we have in this country now, which are, and they're so brainwashed with this meme narratives over crime and other things that it's becoming increasingly difficult for our juries to convict any black person of a crime committed against a white person. They are convicting them of anti-Asian crimes, but I feel that uh, crimes on whites, it's gonna be, especially in these urban cities, you know, like Baltimore, like DC, St. Louis, Atlanta, you know, New York City, it's gonna be increasingly tough for them to convict a black kid or black guy who either, you know, did something terrible to a white person and a jury will just say, oh, systemic racism, we don't want to put this guy in jail. And they'll vote to exonerate or ensure that he gets the lightest charges possible placed against him. And so this is an evidence of that. And it is it is really unfortunate what we're seeing now because it's once again, this is criminalizing self-defense is that a white person can't confront people who are threatening him in any case. Like if that white guy had not been shot he would have probably been charged for like assault just for having his bat out or there have been more charges for him and that guy white guy probably would have served more time in jail than maybe this black kid is who shot him to death and that's just the nature of america right now and so i wanted to highlight that case that's a very important case that we're seeing but every time you know people always try to argue with me and say like well juries can still do well and oh we don't have black privilege in our justice system this is another example of that, and it can be found throughout this country, no matter where. So that's it for uh, the normal topics. There is the topic of Trump's looming indictment, but I talked about that a lot last week, and it's unclear when the new indictment's going to happen. They pressed additional charges against Trump over the documents, but I've already said that, and it's very abundantly clear what's happening there. So I don't, I'll wait till there's more news and more and another indictment on January 6th or stop the steal before uh, giving a full length explanation and analysis of that. So that's it for the regular question or the regular topics. Now onto the cognitively questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me or suggest guests and top ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the cognitively option at highly respected substack and that's at highly respected.substack Make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. The first question comes from our good friend, New England Refugee. Of course, he is going to be there. We love New England Refugee. Uh, Some of the people are like, oh, I can't believe New England Refugee is asking questions. There's nothing wrong with asking as many questions as you want. So I support New England Refugee and all his questions. And he asks, hey, Scott, since Tucker has been off air and there is no Rush Limbaugh anymore, either my boomer friends have really been lost as far as they can tell. Who is the odds-on bet to capture the 40-plus right-wing audience that Tucker and Lumball both dominated for so long? That's a great question because I don't really see that older audience of someone being there. Because 
Daily Wire's audience, I now argue Daily Wire itself, none of the figures, but just as a collective, is now the most influential voice on the right. And that's including Shapiro, Walsh, Candace Owens, uh, Clavin. Uh, Clavin probably not as important, but those three, definitely those three, or and just the Daily Wire as an institution are most influential. But they have their most influence over Gen Xers, really probably the under 40 crowd more than the 40 plus crowd. That's millennials and Zoomers who are moderate, you know, into conservatives. Of course, there's like other better alternatives to that among the younger crowd. But for the majority of them, the and they have a massive audience it's primarily under 40 but with over or definitely under 50 with the over 50 crowd i don't see as much of a replacement but it's just going to just be it's going to be fox news but it's not somebody who is leading them along in the same way that tucker and rush limbaugh did rush limbaugh and tucker were leaders they were not just responding to what their audience wanted to hear they would offer new ideas and guide them their audiences into believing certain topics or to embracing certain topics and embracing certain figures you know rush limbaugh was very pro-trump and i think him being pro-trump helped a lot of conservatives uh, get around the idea of voting for trump in 2016 Tucker, of course, as I've talked about a lot, introduced a lot of new ideas to conservatives and made them believe in it. And they are like that. But I don't see a... It's just going to be Fox News, but it's going to be Fox News of back of the 2000s era. But there's not even like a Bill O'Reilly character. But they'll just tune into Fox News. They'll still listen to it, but there's not so much leading them in a certain direction. It's a direction they're already at, and it's just indulging some of the, where their current positions rather than introducing them to new ideas like Tucker and Limbaugh did. And that becomes a problem because if there's something new that arises, maybe there's like a candidate like Trump comes there, and there are people they're listening to, whether it's you know Jesse Waters or... Clay and Buck, who have replaced the Rush Limbaugh hour, you know, they're just going to state whatever the standard conservative opinion is and what they expect to hear rather than something new and something different. So they're just going to be stuck in that mode. And I don't think that's a. But right now, the standard conservatism is much better than it was in 2008, say 2008. So it's pretty good that they're there. But I do. You know, one that is a major problem that you don't have someone who's introducing the boomers to new ideas. You just have to hope these ideas get so popular that Jesse Waters begins repeating them rather than he's taking it out and something that's otherwise obscure and making it mainstream like Tucker and Limbaugh did. So that's it from New England Refugees question. Now the second question we have is from Mystery. And he says, hey, Scott, do you have any book recommendations about how blank slate ideology won the debate against human biodiversity in the 20th century? I'm going to read Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, but he's a cuck, so I doubt it has the info I'm looking for. I think Pinker's book would be fine in that regard. It doesn't matter if he's a liberal cuck. You know, sometimes you sometimes have to read sources that are otherwise bad or liberal, and they'll give you a lot of information. I've actually never read Blank Slate, but I'm sure it would have some information about it. There's a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time, but I've never got around to it. And it definitely talks about this topic. And it's In Search of Human Nature, The Decline and Revival of Darwinism in American Social Thought by Carl Degler. And Carl Degler was one of the most acclaimed historians of the 20th century. 
Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for a book he did about slavery in 1972. Very much, you know, a reputable source. And he did this whole book about how these blank slaters like Boaz and others overtook Darwinism and made everyone think that, you know, nurture is most important and we're all blank slates. And this totally overthrew what we would call human biodiversity now. Uh, I've been meaning to read it. I will do an IQ supplement on the time I read it. But that would also be a good book. Once again, I have not read these, but I know that Degler's book addresses this uh, probably more so than Blank Slate and maybe more in depth than Blank Slate. I don't really like some of uh, Pinker's writing, so I think uh, Degler's book would probably be less annoying to read. And Degler's book came out in the 90s, so keep that in mind if you're wondering um, how up to date it is. And the third question comes from Alex. He asked, hey, Scott, or he didn't say, hey, Scott, here. He said, a few weeks ago, you made a passing dig at the likes of Aaron Copeland and George Gershwin, seemingly regarding them as some sort of entarta music, uh, degenerate music. I don't think I did call them that. I just didn't like them, but we'll go along. As a fledgling pianist, much of my time as a child was spent listening and playing their compositions. However, your comment made me realize I only have a general understanding of their social and cultural impacts. Aside from an obvious commonality between the two of them, what of their life and work puts them in the Cardi B category of not even once music? Thanks as always. I wouldn't put them as the not even once music. Copeland is okay. He's a little bit corny, but once again, I'm not a trained musicologist, not this. This is just what I hear in my ears and what I interpret from the feeling of the music. Uh, Copeland is not as bad as... Uh, Gershwin. I think the main problem with Gershwin is he incorporated a lot of black influences into his music and it made the authentic American music mean blues and jazz influence rather than in opposition to what is European classical music and that, you know, they were not incorporating blues and jazz influence into it. I would not put them in the same category as Cardi B. Uh, Copeland is okay. I like uh, Fanfare for the Common Man is is nice it's a short little piece i would i would if copeland comes on a classical music station i'm not like reaching for the dial george gershwin comes on and i'm like i get i get mad <laughs> i really don't like gershwin but in comparison to the alternatives i would not put them in the same league as cardi b but they there is that type of uh problem in how American classical music emulated that it really did they're like well we have to stress a unique character of our music and how it is and they felt that the best way to do that is to incorporate black influence into it and the blues and jazz stuff which maybe to a small degree because a lot of popular music of course has you know that black influence but I think when it works in classical music it makes it uh, not so good with Copeland it was a little bit cheesy because he was trying to create this populist element that would reach large audiences and would sound like a soundtrack music which is fine i think um i don't think copeland's compositions are that bad uh, but it's also the the backgrounds of it is copeland <laughs> was not a uh, leg neither one of them were legacy americans <laughs> we'll, we'll say that but copeland was a you know copeland was also gay it's like the funny thing is like it's all um Ellis Islanders and most of them were gay is like the people who made American classical music, um, which uh, is so, like the famous conductors and composers like uh, Leonard Bernstein is another example of that. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. It's something I prefer more the European 
both the conductors and the composers as well. But I would not put them in the same category as Cardi B. And I actually have some final conclusions to post-white conservatism that well, I'll end on because I didn't address this. And two things I want to point out is that one, even though I said a lot of the old stock, the legacy Americans are, you know, a lot of them are still firmly committed to the Americas and idea. A lot of them are being pushed in the right direction because if you look at polling, like three quarters of Trump supporters believe in the Great Replacement and believe it's a bad thing. So they are pos- they are moving in the right direction, but they still cling to a lot of the old myths and delusions of the past because that's what they were raised with. And it's very hard for people to give up on things that they learn ever since childhood, as, as should be expected. The second thing I want to say is a funny thing about Indians is that Indians are becoming more influential, both conservatives and liberalism, but it's a gender gap, is that the Indian men are becoming more important on conservatism and replacing a lot of the neocons, so to speak, and conservatism and taking their place. While on the liberal side, it's Indian women taking over these positions. And so you don't see very many Indian women involved in conservative politics. Like Nikki Haley is like a lone exception. Most of it is Indian men. While there are tons of South Asian women who are heavily involved in liberal politics, and you can see that even with uh, Pramila Jayapal and others like that, who are becoming influential. So it's mainly like Indian men who are taking in these positions on conservatism and then Indian women influencing liberalism. And so the new uh, war of the sexes may be between (laughs) Indian men versus Indian women over whether we have a post-white American conservatism or post-white American leftism. (laughs) Uh, Post-white American leftism is, of course, far worse. But and they're very shrill, very anti-white for the and, and I'm talking about the Indian women who are taking these positions on liberalism. So it's something interesting that's happening with uh, that and how they are. But I think with one thing with Indians is that they, a lot of them I don't think are genuine believers in what they're into. That's different from other like past immigrant groups who became influential American politics is that they actually genuinely believe what they are advocating for. I think with Indians, it's just a game to gain power, status, and wealth. And you can also see this by how South Asians who are like far like extreme leftists and ones who are conservative all get along with one another, uh, which is not the same with like um, other groups where they they may have be the same ethnicity, but they have different different political ideologies and they're very hostile to one another. They seem to get along because I think fundamentally they just recognize this as a game for to gain wealth, status, and power, and they're playing it very well. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. But the last final thought is that also Indians are also replacing a lot of the white nerds who made the tech companies. And instead, they're replacing them because a lot of the nerds aren't really strivers. They're not really quite the brown nosers that Indians are. And, you know, if you look at the Google CEO and others, they're really experts at how to rise to the top of the corporate field. So it's not just in politics where they're rising to the top. It's also the corporate field where they have unique traits that are make them uh, better suited to rise up rather than, say, the white nerds who built these companies, or at least when it came to, to tech companies. So that's something else uh, that's interesting about them and part of their game. But uh, we'll keep an eye on this and keep talking about the subject for more. But that's it for Highly Respected today. We're going to have some more incredible content coming out later this week. So keep your eye on that. So until next time, stay respected.